0: okay <laughs> sometimes you need to let sometimes go sometimes you, you just need to let go that's the idea about the podcast in the first episode
1: <laughs> just let go and, and and take some psychedelics exactly <laughs> <laughs> hello everybody welcome to episode one of ideologica obscura i'm your host uh thomas you know me from episode zero i introduce myself in uh, very um explicit terms um hello everybody And I want to introduce somebody to you. Yeah, well,
0: I mean, I'm I'm that special somebody. Well, I'm Aaron. I am also in the same university as Thomas. And, well... We're both mentally deranged. We're both insane enough to do a subject which drives many people insane. So, we're very excited about that.
1: So, and we're carving out our own um, insane niche in the market, um, particularly catered to... Insane schizophrenics like you guys, um, and
0: also the two or three normal people yeah. that are still so listening, so like Th- that
1: being our family. Exactly. So we're my very accommodating. Yeah, we're very <laughs> towards like all age groups. Let's exactly. Say. We're 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 a, we're an intersectional podcast. You know, um, we'll bring I'm
0: studying humanities. If I hear that word, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm going to I'm going to scream.
1: <laughs> well, that, that's I, I. Well, with that uh noted. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna be starting at the um the top of the uh the ice cube. I'm sorry, the um uh, the iceberg. This is by the way, this is our third take where he no, made the our same second, mistake. This is this our is second <laughs> take, and I mean I did. That let's on call perfect. it. Let's call it an ice cube. We're calling it. We're calling the iceberg an ice cube. Because, yeah, exactly. Because what really is what? Did, what's the difference? differentiation between icebergs yeah and geometry an ice cube. A ge- geometry is something that's open to interpretation right exactly because there are no nature laws exactly geometry is is a pseudoscience developed by people um to sell cubes it's, it's developed by big cube yes <laughs> it's de- developed by big cube yeah <laughs> okay let's not go off on any tangents and let's go we're going to be introducing episode one and today we're going to be start at the top of the ice cube um with uh the ideological ice cube with a. Uh, National Bolshevism. Some of you may probably know this and think of it as vanilla of the most like wacky ideologies. So,
0: and the others are listening to the saying that like, how are those two
1: connected to each other? Are they the <laughs> complete opposite? Exactly. Yeah. Some and for those who don't understand it, we're gonna, I'm going to quickly define it in very simple terms. Extremely simple terms. The the extremely simple terms in that national Bolshevism. This is a definition I got from Eric Von Rhee. Also, all the sources I'll be using for this podcast will be in the description, so shout out to the academics that slaved away for this. Um, He defines it as a radical tendency which combines a commitment to class struggle and total nationalization of the means of production with extreme nationalistic chauvinism. Basically, think about it as if Nazis were actually national socialists.
0: Yeah, because they weren't very like they were national, sure, but they weren't very socialist. Exactly when it that, came to like reigning
1: in big industry. That's often one of the things that people try, try get confused about and defining what is a national Bolshevik. Because does this include communists because they existed within the state boundaries? Does this include you know um pe- uh, right wing populists that say hey maybe we should give out a, a UBI, basically UBI to people, Um or does this include like you know? People who – the so-called national socialists of uh, Nazi Germany um, who said that they, they appealed to the Arbeiter uh, against the uh, the international Jewish conspiracy, which they equate Judea, uh, Judaism. Which conspiracy
0: are we talking about right now? <laughs> we're, gonna, we're talking because, about – Because like, I'm Jewish, and I'm in like – according to people, I'm into like 2,000 conspiracies. The one, the one
1: where 21. you own all the money and oh, all the Oh, yeah, things. the oldest one. Exactly, then. yeah. Okay. The one where you guys um, control the international banking system. And, like, we give people very high interest rates that they're unable to pay. Exactly. Um, and ba- basically, it's a, what they do is they equate Jewish people to capitalism, which yeah. is very funny because I know most Jews that I know are often very left-wing. And most Jews I know are very, like, apolitical. so Yeah. <laughs> So, it can be
0: a spread, you know? Yeah, it's as if ethnic groups have a differentiation of ideas within them, huh? Exactly.
1: So, but that's the thing, is that how are we going to talk about a national mosfix when we can't define it? Well, simple. I'm going to make it up. Um, you're just, like, <laughs> you're just, yeah, this, this podcast is just like Thomas making up shit along the way. Exactly. We have no sources. The sources, we made it the fuck up. <laughs> so, that's the whole question. How do we define it? We're going to define it based on what um, Eric Von Ries said. In that I don't think that most communist countries actually apply to this definition because you think about it, their political economy was they're, – they're trapped within the nation state. You can't really have, like, you know, the idealized internationalist communitarianism. And even the most, like, chauvinistic of, uh, you know, communists, whether that be Enver Hoxha, uh, probably not Pol Pot. Um, <laughs> let's be clear about that one. Um, or even, like, the DPRK, there was some degree of, you know – at least either real commitment to internationalism or an aesthetic of internationalism. Yeah. But there was also, but, but you also have to think about like, you know, some of these countries were post-colonial and they were working within their colonial boundaries and their identity was developed from these colonial boundaries, like in Vietnam. Yeah. They, they were, were
0: exposed to like the Western way of thinking of like borders, national identities. Exactly. And, the and, exactly.
1: That. and they formed that and they formed like more of egalitarian nationalism, in which like, you know, we are all of one people and we've got to fight against our colonial oppressors yada yada but what about people like um so we have that and i think that mo- some communists don't exactly apply to that because they didn't necessarily always meet meet the um criteria of this this real rugged this real like you know nationalism this like be- blood and soil kind of nationalism well well in the case of the right you had the Nazis. And some yeah. people say that, you know, you had socialist Nazis like Otto Strasse, And I think, yes, they actually would apply to that definition. But I'm not going to talk about Stasism because I do think they deserve their own video. So we're not talking about them. And uh, we, in this we don't want to go off on any more tangents. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> but if you talk about the actual Nazis like, you know, Hitler, Goering, Himmler, um, those guys weren't actually socialists at all. Despite being called National Socialists, ironically enough, they weren't. They wow. they
0: sort they sort out unity on like an ethnic basis rather than a classist one.
1: Yeah. Well, they well as we said before that they use the class um they use the idea the the veneer of class struggle and this is something what an author I've been reading about from uh, Michael Parenti he talks about how the nationalists use like a fake um or a faux like revolutionary aesthetic um in order to like you know excite the working class um and they do target like you know aspects of big business but not universally mainly it's for you know the jews Yeah. thing you know the jews are controlling the big banks they're controlling the 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 international uh, big businesses and uh, gouging your wages or stuff like that you know therefore we need to be self sufficient without being like overly dependent exactly. on, the, on the jewish lobby but the thing lo- would then be is that they would but by being self sufficient they would instead not have economic autarky they would have um, they would have um german businesses do it like volkswagen or bmw instead of making their um making their products so they would and the nazis themselves were often you know in bed with a lot of these uh uh big businesses giving out handouts exactly We've now giving them like you know corporate handouts corporate welfare breaking up unions and stuff like that um so the nazis themselves were very much capitalistic and this is going back to michael Parenti. They were the watchdogs of capitalism and big businesses. Yeah. And this this happened in Italy as well and also in other countries. Spain too. Spain, Chile. This is basically what generally what happened is that big businesses would get concerned over the communist involvement and then they would call up the Nazis and other fascists and they would, and then, you know, they would come work out a deal. So there's that. But then you may ask, who do we have? And well, where did this come from? Where does this idea of national Bolshevism, this seemingly paradoxical idea of communism and fascism, what we generally think as like two bipolar opposites, how could they synthesize? Well, we have to talk about World War One. Now, Aaron, you guys fought in World War One.
0: Yeah, um, you guys also fought. Yeah, we, World we War both both
1: both of our sides. Um, if 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 you may not. Don't know where we're from. I'm from the United States. I'm and... from Turkey, yeah. formerly known as the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, what was World War One exactly?
0: Well, based on the names and the adjectives in like that term, I think it was a war.
1: Yeah, I think so. That too. was
0: like encompassing
1: the entire planet. Yeah, I, I think so too. And right. I feel like it was the first of its kind. Yeah, no, I think so too. I mean, I I heard apparently uh, this is something I I'm not sure, but it was like very destructive it was very
0: destructive
1: yeah it made people like it was
0: destructive both in material and also spiritual ways psychological psychological as well physical whatever you think of like it's basically destroyed the idea of like a bright future for many westerners
1: yes yeah
0: and um Which, well i mean i believe that's where like the, we got a bright future out of it <laughs> I mean, yeah we did get a bright future out of it, but like we didn't live to see the, the first world <laughs> war we like we were born 90 years after that so i feel like based on this like spiritual corruption i feel like sp- specifically losing side germany and like the turks have had like
1: ideological developments that exactly was a result of this yeah and even like the the winners of the war i mean it was just such a a, a bad war it was a terrible war that, like, saw, like, millions of young men just die for, like, you know, a bunch of inbred assholes back in their pa- palaces or something like that. Yeah,
0: exactly. They just, like, the only thing they got out of the war was either death or being shell-shocked after four
1: years of constant bombardment. Well, or- we got Belgium out, out of it. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> that's, like, that's the war I'll fight, <laughs> Uh, oh, boy, can't wait to die for the independence of Belgium. Yes. <laughs> but, I mean, the conservative revolution came out of it. But... Exactly. And you may be asking, what is the conservative revolution? Well, in response to World War I, um, it was generally an embodiment, I guess, of the pessimism and the degeneration that society f- faced after World War One. that was created by, like, you know, liberal democracies were of a, Rash- rationalism. Well, yeah. the Modernism. Ra- well, I mean, after World War One, you saw the rise of democracies. I mean, Germany became yeah. a democracy, got rid of the Kaiser, um, and you also saw the rise of other democracies in the new places in Europe, like in you know, Czechoslovakia or Austria, and the democracies that won, Germany was pissed off, and Germany was, was out for blood again. And basically, what they believed was a, you know, it was a broad... Uh, movement that began in 1919 but generally they believed kind of in the same ideas of that they were against the developments of enlightenment egalitarianism modernity rationalism democracy and even christian ethics if you think about um uh uh, nietzsche and stuff like that yeah and he's the guy with the large mustache exactly got large mustache man yeah that's i mean that's his only contribution exactly um but the this, this so called pre fascist movement would produce various thinkers such as Fichte, Liszt, Muller von, von den Bruck, and uh, Spengler. And you mean you know about Spengler? I mean, yeah, I know about Spengler. So I tell me, who, who was Spengler? I mean, he was one of those
0: pessimists that was that was like a result of World War One. Because yeah. the thing is, after the destruction caused by World War I, I like the alienation that people had from Western ideals such as egalitarianism and rationalism. Yeah. Spengler was one of the people that didn't see much hope in the future of the West. Yeah. So that's why he wrote a book about that. Yeah,
1: exactly. He, he was a historian that believed in, like, you know, cyclical cycles of uh, death and rebirth, I guess. Well, I'm not sure about the rebirth part. Probably just, like, you know.
0: Just that, because, yeah, he was overly oh, the pessimistic. Rise, yeah, the
1: rise and decline of nations. Like, he would talk about, like, Babylonia as, like, one civilization and Rome and stuff like that. And he would talk about the West and how it was um in its decline. And stuff no, I
0: mean, like yeah, he was partially right because. Like, we saw a massive decline in Western Europe specifically.
1: Exactly. But
0: also North America is a part of the West, so, like, we so like, Western Europe declined while North America flourished.
1: To an extent. I mean, they got rid of alcohol, so I can't say that. that I mean, they got thing. rid of alcohol. <laughs> yeah. So, but generally what they what they did believe in was socialism. They called yeah. themselves socialists, but not in social terms, mainly in economic, you know. They they liked what they saw in the Soviet Union. That's something that we're going to talk about later. Is how much that the Soviet Union played into this. Um, what they believed is that the economic autarky that the Soviet Union had was great for the society and for its unity because it did not rely on outside interference, um, did not rely on an international monetary or banking system, um, and that what they and what they did believe in in social terms was a national spirit. A unique national spirit that was called a Volkgeist, um, a body politic known as um, the popular community, a Volksgemeinschaft, um, in which these aspects would be welded together into a uh, strong authoritarian state that would control the means of production. With the social glue being a uh, quote-unquote Prussian culture that would uh, uphold a originally stratified uh, militaristic society. You know.
0: So as it would be a very militaristic society, and it would also have like state-owned means of production, exactly not state-supported like Nazi Germany, but
1: state-owned like the yeah. Soviet Union. Exactly, and this is, I mean, the Russian Revolution was another big part of this yeah. because you saw the rise of a whole new, a whole new ideology and everything, and that it came to fruition. People didn't th- thought it would have be, been impossible. Like they would have expected it to happen in Germany. I mean, it almost did happen in Germany. But it almost did happen in a of parcel. Of it did, Europe, yeah. but it never was successful until 1917.
0: As in, yeah, the governments adapted to the changes wanted by like the workers and all that. Yeah, but they never did truly change like way of governance.
1: Exactly, they maintained the same authoritarian system yeah. that under the, of the czars, and but that was. But then they painted it red, and then they controlled businesses. And what they did was, in what Stalin did. I mean, he got rid of, he did decollectivization. He got rid of the landlords, and there was total um, unitary control of, you know, the economy and the nation by um, by him. Yeah. I mean. That, and that was something that like really turned on the, these revolutionary conservatives so much. So yeah, because they're like, God, I wish the state had
0: more control in my life. Yeah.
1: <laughs> God, I want big government. Ah, oh! <laughs>
0: free, free will, the ability to spend money on whatever I want. I want all of that gone. I, <laughs> I just want the state to guide everything I do.
1: Here. <laughs> well, the, I mean, mainly I think the reason why is because of aesthetics, and also they would view themselves at, as the ones on top. They didn't have to be. You know, they didn't want to have to worry about not be uh, of like, you know, shortages or stuff like that or, you know, of a uh, supply chain of inefficiencies. Yeah. Because that was a whole thing is that like whenever someone advocates for this ideology, they always view themselves on top, especially if it's authoritarian. Yeah. Um, and so we have that. and We have where it came from. Um, so let's talk about how it was applied. You want to know what was first applied as? Tell me foreign policy isn't that great for us so we've been t- so wait
0: we've been talking about the domestic policy aspect of national bolshevism for like yes. half an hour now yeah but now we're gonna like talk about the first application
1: which was actually foreign policy exactly damn well, i mean the- these ideas of uh you know it was were existing before but it was in actual practice by government officials obviously you had you know uh various ideologues and stuff like that constantly basically just posting the equivalent of posting um on twitter just just tweeting yeah basically yeah and in in the form of that would just be you know writing journals and shit like that and being like the, the SPD top. is yeah. a bunch of fucking Tars. They did not support fucking Rosa Luxemburg. And they <laughs> and they, and, they, and they are signing the Versailles Treaty. They're trainers to the German state. Yeah, exactly. And, because exactly. because yeah. the
0: Treaty of Versailles
1: was seen by many Germans as a massive betrayal. Oh yeah. No, even every literally every side, both left and right, hated the Versailles Treaty. I mean, if you were German, you hated it. So in the case of a Foreign policy, you know, that was the, actually what it began to be applied as in, into real policy terms before it was, you know, being advocated as like an as an actual ideology. We'll talk about what that ideological development, where it came from. But first, we have to talk about its foreign policy application. So, the idea the idea began um, with German conservatives arguing that the that Germany should ally with the USSR. And cooperate um, with the socialist proletariat of Germany in order uh, to have a a new order, a new unified order that would make Germany strong both internally and internationally, Um, make it great again, you know. Um, Make Germany great again. Exactly. When, when are we putting that on a hat? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have to wait till 1933 for that. <laughs> okay. That's gonna be next episode. <laughs> so, and what happened one, was is that you know then someone even argued that like with the support of the Soviet Union and the unit and the unification of Germany of uh, you know of the working classes and of that of the nation. We can then go to war with the Entente and take back Alsace-Lorraine and make yep. Germany great again. Yep. I want Belgium, goddammit! <laughs> yeah, Germany's the only one that wants Belgium. <laughs> ah. And a small minority of, uh, of these more radical conservatives even argued that Germany could be reinvigorated by having a Bolshevik Revolution. One of these guys that, was, that explicitly said it was Paul Edsbacher. Um, in April of 1929, and he was a member of the Reichstag and argued for the introduction of Bolshevism in Germany, for a council system, and the socialization of the means of production without compensation, arguing that the rich should make the sacrifice of their capital for the fatherland. And then in May that year, the Deutschtag tag zeitung coined the phrase National Bolshevismus. So that is national Bolshevism as it is. But how do we get there? I, f- I know I keep going back and forth but it's how important. do we
0: get there so do we have to go to like the World War one period of Europe
1: no we're going back to um, Roman Empire times uh, the, with the okay, battle good. with Armenia
0: with uh, Armenius uh so, okay so what we're saying right now is that <laughs> this episode is gonna be five hours long exactly no, it's okay good so the first actual
1: national Bolshevist was Julius Caesar. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I think a lot of guys, a lot of Nazbols on Twitter would probably like that. I mean, yeah, that's why I don't post anything about (laughs) Romanism. I want to follow its ideological development before 1929 so we can actually figure out how we got there. Because it was, as an ideology, was being developed by multiple people that were in German society. Um, Such as one of the guys actually wrote the National Bolshevik Manifesto, Karl Otto Peitel, Um, I think I'm pronouncing that right, Um, and and Ansiunga or various other uh, revolutionary conservatives that were, you know, revolutionary nationalists, I mean, that were – that the the, the strum of national Bolshevism developed in. But one guy I want to follow that – who I did the most research on that I want to talk about because I feel like his life um, and his ideological development is very emblematic of the ideological development of national Bolshevism. And that guy is Ernst Niekisch. He was born in the German Empire in, Te- in Trebnitz, which is now in uh, modern day Poland and Silesia, in 1889. He worked as a school teacher, but then later joined the SPD in 1917 and was involved in. We're going to talk about it. Is yes. You were excited that, for this. At yeah, the that, beginning. I mean, that's the reason why I became a part of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, and was involved in the short lived. Bavarian Soviet Republic. Now, if you've never heard of the Bavarian Soviet Republic, um, you may have not learned too much about the uh, the German uh, Revolution that occurred after, from 1918 to 1919. Basically, this was when Germany almost had a communist revolution. That Karl, That the idea that what Karl Marx had, that an industrialized society would have a communist revolution, particularly Germany because it was so industrialized. Almost happened, but it didn't. It, it happened in an overly peasant-dominated society that was Russia. Exactly. And then it happened again in an even more peasant uh, so- society known as China. Yeah, China. <laughs> <laughs> Those so, two
0: are my favorite industrial countries. Yeah, exactly. So Marx had some foresight.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, when, when you get dabbed on by, by a Chinese peasant. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason why it didn't happen, um, mainly you can blame uh the SPD. That's right. Olaf Schultz prevented communism in the, Germany. The <laughs> <mortal> German <controller. laughs> Damn you Chancellor Olaf Schultz. Exactly. <laughs> you
0: ruined my country. <laughs>
1: uh yeah, so um and the reason why is because the SPD uh would hire uh people called A group of uh, jolly good men called the Freikorps to come in and kill communists, particularly, you know, uh, Rosa Luxemburg and um, Karl Liebenitz, I think. Um, Two of the most prominent socialist
0: thinkers of, like, the early 20th century.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, They killed them, and then eventually it would backfire on them because the Freikorps would also try to do coups against the SPD government, and then the SPD government would get communists to help them out. Um, and it would be kind of going back. And so forth. it was like
0: an overall mumbo jumbo of ideological conflict.
1: Yeah, that. But also the SPD was kind of playing both sides.
0: But I mean, in the end, they won. Sure. Well, I
1: think in the end, they eventually lost.
0: Yeah, but I mean, in, in the, the short, long run, <laughs> in, in the short run, they won.
1: Yeah, yeah. Don't don't uh don't play both sides when you're uh when you're a social democrat. Yeah. Basically. So that and the same thing would happen with the Bavarian Soviet Republic. Um, which declared its independence from uh, Germany um, and was wracked by ideological infighting and government inefficiency. Gee, that reminds you of somewhere literally every single... Socialist Republic? No way! Really? No, wow, I never the heard Pari- of it. The
0: Paris Commune had the same problems forty no, years ago. Wait, no, what? No, wow, impossible! No,
1: impossible!
0: I can't imagine. The left has ideological infighting. <laughs> this is this is a this is place where you're learning new information, folks.
1: Well, I mean, today, actually, you know how many communist parties there are today in Germany? Like two hundred four. Damn. And there, and two of them are called like called almost the same thing. There is the KPD, and then there's the DKP. So the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front <laughs> Judea. <Yeah>, exactly. <laughs> SPLITTERS! <laughs> oh shit. Aaron almost uh Aaron spilled almost Aaron spilled his coffee on his uh beautiful um but also slightly worn uh Turkish table. Yep. It's okay, actually so. pretty nice. Anyway, <laughs> but and it was racked by ideological infighting, fighting and much like uh um um, Rosa Luxemburg and other uh, communists. Uh, it got uh, owned by the Freikorps. Yeah, basically. And and they would be on, and people would be put on trial, including And Anschekish was actually involved invo- involved in the government, and was put on trial for you know, the S the government in uh, B- the Soviet Repu- Bavarian Soviet Republic actually did cause some you know some atrocities to some degree. Along with the Freikorps, both sides were killing people um, in you know between 1918, 1919. And he stood trial and denied responsibility for the actions of the government and its atrocities, and was sentenced to two years in prison. But this experience of the Bavarian Revolution was a quote a crucible through which Niekisch had to pass in order to reach national Bolshevism, since a national a revolution in Germany. What he believed is a revolution in Germany could never succeed as long as socialist workers and nationalist soldiers and veterans face one another behind lowered guns. Basically, what he believed is that now you need to have the workers and nationalist soldiers and veterans unite together in order for a revolution to occur Yeah, because
0: if they kill each other then it weakens both sides but if they unite then they become one strong force
1: exactly this is kind of like why i think the russian revolution was successful is because you had soldiers that were on the soviet side if you just have like a bunch of sure you can have like workers like pick up arms and like you know hold back like you know government forces you can definitely do that but if you're talking about industrial but they're less likely to win because i mean workers are not trained military guys they yeah. they're not they don't have the same discipline they don't have the they same they don't have the same coordination coordination training they can and they make the same mistakes that they would that they pro- probably probably would have avoided you yeah. know um which is why you should read theory <laughs> that's, that's the best
0: pastime hobby anyone it's, has exactly to yeah. all the workers that just do back labor for 18 hours a day read some theory yeah, bro re- read read uh, read,
1: read, some read theory. all read all volumes of, of of das kapital yeah literally sleeping
0: is overrated just spend the rest of your life trying to understand what yeah. marx meant if if not if, if you don't do that you're a
1: reactionary <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that... why are you working read some theory <laughs> exactly um so eventually he actually got into politics um despite being you know uh, a criminal um, in all sense and purposes. So um, there was a criminal in the yeah, parliament. Exactly. Dun dun dun. That's specifically the first time in I know. <laughs> specifically, the Bavarian Landtag in 1929, in which ingeniously he was a list member for the uh, the the USPD, which he le- since he left the SPD and joined the Independent um, Social Democratic Party um, after, and he did this from and he got elected from prison. But eventually he had to, you know, he had to wait till he got deceit, but he got it eventually. And during this time he'd receive threats from reactionary murder gangs in Bavaria because at this point everybody was so pissed off about what happened with the Bavarian so- Soviet Republic. Region swung to the other side to the other uh, side of the pendulum. Um, and that these uh, reactionary murder gangs were, you know, supported by the pro-monarchist government that it was in Bavaria. He also tried to appeal to the Langtag to expel leaders of uh various right-wing groups which didn't help including a um a certain austrian man i an austrian I, painter you an mean an austrian painter yeah I, just some i just you know cool fact i thought i mentioned just you know? just some random guy probably some, has no yeah. mark on history exactly whatsoever. yeah no, never heard of him um you pro- probably very insignificant it was it <laughs> like a, what was his name like Adolf? Adolfus? Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but anyway, because, despite being part of a splinter party from the SPD, they would, funnily enough, they would reunite with the SPD, forced him to become an SPD member again, despite having left the party previously. During this time, he would become a writer uh, for many left and social democrat magazines, in which he attacked the SPD on uh, two fronts, uh, attacking the party for its failure to defend the interests against reactionary businessmen and politicians as refusal to liberate germany by fighting against the treaty of versailles. So
0: this is like an instance where we see both the foreign policy application and the domestic policy exactly. application of national bullshit. Exactly.
1: Itself.
0: Because like the inner enemy is the reactionary businessman and yes. the outer enemy is the signatory parties of the treaty of versailles. Exactly,
1: the entente. Yeah. Um and, le- and he would also later propose the Dawes plan which was, you know, um uh, a forget basically a way for germany to be able to pay its loans. But during this time, he would also become increasingly nationalistic, arguing against reparations for draining the lifeblood of the German proletariat. But his nationalistic rhetoric separated him from the communists and identified him as more of the the chauvinist uh, wing of the SPD, if not a far rider. He also urged the SPD to adopt a more nationalistic um, element and also policy stance. And he started radicalizing the US the youth, um, you know, of the SPD, uh, with this, you know, nationalistic, um, you know, socialist, uh, aspect. Yeah,
0: because youth had to be mobilized to, like, combat the state which was actively fucking
1: them over. Exactly. Well, well, yeah, exactly. Um, and this resulted in what we would call today a posting war, um, or an angry Twitter thread, um, against the Social Democrat magazine's Die Glocke. By 1926, he was ousted from the Young, Democrat, the young Socialist Movement of the SP, and the SPD, and he lost his job in the Textile Workers' Union because of, this, of, his, of his increasing nationalistic elements um, and could no longer make money from socialist publications. However, opportunity began, came knocking at his door with the creation of the old Social Democratic Party. There's a lot of social democratic Yeah, I was going to say so. Like, <laughs> so there was a USD, USDP. So no, there was a USPD. USPD, USPD um, but they merged with SPD. Exactly. Now they're gone. But now there's the old social democratic Exactly, party. which is the ASP, um, which was based in Saxony, which was a breakaway um, from the SPD. Um, that was virulently anti-KPD. That's a communist party of Germany. And Pro Reich so that they were in favor of the actual German Reich. These were the kind of, like, old-school guys that would have probably, vote, probably voted for war um, in the first place, and that Niekisch was able to join them and began work on their journal. And he sought to make this party a um, a third front that would both unite the proletariat and national revolutionary mo- movements that were developing in Germany at this time in the 1920s. In July of this year, he would make a contribution to, you know, Nash, what we what we know as uh, national Bolshevism today as one of their I- iconic um, images that of the national Bolshevik eagle, which was an eagle. Um, since this is an audio form, some of you can see this on YouTube. Is of an eagle, a sword in one hand, a sickle in the other, and a hammer in the center of it. Kind of like you know the imperial eagles that Germany used to have before, and the sword as nationalistic elements, but also the hammer and the sickle of communist elements. And this would be the the logo uh, for his uh, journal, Widerstand, uh, which means resistance, and which was advertised as a magazine for socialist and national revolutionary politics. And those politics were against the West, but the resistance had to wait since Nietzsche called for great preparation, with the intellectual and organizational groundwork having to be laid out. I find it funny when everyone says that we need to work on the intellectual orga- organizational groundwork cuz it makes sense, you know, but how often does that ever happen? How
0: do you even organize like intellectualism? I feel like like free thinking should be an important part of intellectual. Well, what in you person. do
1: is you get a bunch what you do is you get a bunch of redditors together, real intellectuals, and you get them in one room and you make them scream at each other. Um, Until everybody leaves, and that's intellectual organization. No, but I mean, yeah, fair point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fair point. His critics would actually bash him for this. You no, know, you know, but if people were not happy when they saw this shit, because they're like, what the fuck is this stuff? Um, they would bash him for this for serving the ends of bourgeois social reaction funnily enough he distinguished himself from the national socialist um you know at this time the NSDAP or the National Socialist Deutsche Arbeiterpartei
0: we apologize to Germans for the pronunciation fick dich
1: that was nice okay continue. <laughs> um and he said that saying that he and his group were less destructive and hateful <laughs> which is and that their main sin was actually diverting um, everyone's attention away from the real enemy. The French. <laughs> I mean...
0: Okay, they're not completely wrong.
1: <laughs> because Hating I mean, on I... the
0: French? Based. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yeah, because the French took Alsace-Lorraine, which was, like, one of the most important provinces of the Empire.
1: And they and they temporarily also temporarily occupied the Ruhr, which, which people were still pissed off the, about. Yeah, the Rhineland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is like you know the main um industrial factory yeah, for exactly. it, industrial region for for Germany. The fight unfortunately for uh Widerstand's uh, readership did did not reach its target audience of you know socialist uh, proletariat and the the nash and the patriotic proletariat, the national revolutionaries. Yeah, um, I feel
0: like he was trying to like juggle too many ideological groups to be yeah, successful. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. You got, you want to have a clear focus group. Uh, focus test your uh your 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 works. Yeah. we didn't do he that. He tried to be a centrist in the 20th century. It didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> he tried to be a he tried to be the Fox News version of a centrist. God, I mean Tucker. I he basi- <laughs> it basically, he's kind of. basically, he's doing what Tucker Carlson is, but from the left. <laughs> <laughs> and and. And mainly, it would reach like like like-minded national Bolsheviks um, and and groups national Bolshevik groups like the Bund and the Bund Oba I don't know how to pronounce it. And it would also create the you know the circle the resistance circle. Um, and that th- there's one clear idea that I actually got that was very interesting from this that the idea of the well of the welfare of the state and the interests of the pos- in the possessing classes did not coincide. Actually, basically, this is the idea that you know you often hear, particularly if you're in America, that elites are anti-America and against the American nation. Interesting. Yeah, I just, I, It's just a little tidbit I want to talk about. What the, <laughs> from the from the from the from the right perspective, the Strasserites and the left Nazis were interested in the ideas of the National Bolsheviks, but criticized them for not being racist enough. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean this is I mean this is very funny because, you know, Ansonicus himself was like, you know, anti-Semitic. But he thought that the that the Nazis were like, you know, a bit too much. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like especially during that
0: time, anti-Semitism was a prerequisite if you wanted to be a far-right person. Exactly. And but
1: he would ask in that they they didn't think that he was racist enough and that race didn't make up an important part of element of his ideology and believe that, you know. Germanic qualities were more of a state of mind rather than hereditary. Um, so so as
0: in he didn't want to genocide every single minority or people with disability to cre- create a,
1: a homogenous nation a, pu- a purity a pure state where everyone does incest
0: because <laughs> that's, that's basically so, like, what it leads it, to
1: <laughs> So it's more of a thing of
0: assimilation in like for state of mind rather than active genocide.
1: I don't know because he never achieved power. Mm. spoiler alert instead the enemies um were within were the ones that reject the within the german nation were the ones that rejected the ideology of Widerstand. um instead of those you know, instead those people were anti-prussian and adopted elements of western also roman civilization this is i, I talked about armenius before at one point and this is this is what it gets to armenius um and it, roman civilization roman slash western civilization which was, you know, democracy, Catholicism, liberalism, and cosmopolitanism. Um, in that he believed, also they believed in this idea of Prussianized Marxism, the legacy of Prussia, which was actually, I mean this this existed within the far right of the idea of Prussianism, but was an ideological identification that was very much held um, with enthusiasm by other national Bolsheviks little tidbit is that he was part of the Association for the Study of a Russian Planned Economy, or Aplan. alongside various figures, such as National Revolutionary Ernst Junga, the neo-pagan Friedrichs-Heilscher, Heils- sorry about these names, this is going to be Hungarian one, so I'm not, I'm going to fuck it up, uh, the future minister of the Hungarian Revolutionary Government in 1956, and communist philosopher Georgi Lukács, and the German-American communist, who would turn anti-communist, Karl Witvogel and funnily enough, our plan is actually in the name of Nazbol website today. Don't hey, go NASBAL. there. Yeah, don't <laughs> go there. There were also other uh, Nazbol groups that were going on at this time. There was the Gagna group um, that were like, you know, finally, they were quote unquote above politics. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why they didn't get elected. <laughs> exactly. That came in 1932 um, and believed in an inward revolution for uh, the creation of a new man. Um, but I mean, like, this
0: was. We're talking about, like, the main development of the Nazville ideology? And we're
1: talking about various different groups that occurred.
0: No, 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 as in, like, yeah. our main point of focus is the main development, but th- there were also, like, other groups. Oh, independent yeah. Independent of, like, what oh, was yeah. happening because, in the I mean, i Landstad.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, you know, well, I mean, this is no longer in the na- Uyghur This is, like, you know, national, national. Yeah. Yeah. But most of these groups would end up either getting killed or joining the Nazis. Yeah. To end with, uh, Antonikov, his time would end eventually. In 1934... A year after the Nazis gained power um, in the German election, well, not really, they weren't really elected. They got put in by uh, uh, Hindenburg. Hindenburg, yeah. yeah. They were banned uh, by the newly elected Nazi government. And in 1937, Niekisch would be arrested by the Gestapo and sentenced for life in prison. He would live on, but he would be blinded and eventually stay in East Germany and then, you know, move to West Germany after he saw the massacre of workers. Oh, interesting. So he was alive after, like, after Nazi Germany took power. Yeah, part. Well, he was blind after after he got released. But anyway, I wanted to close this episode by um, talking about, you know, Joseph Stalin, because yeah. if you want to talk about a left wing national Bolshevik, most of them point to him, and most na- modern national Bolshe- Bolsheviks love the guy. I mean, of course, because he basically put into application what they were all dreaming of. Yes, exactly. A strong. Um, state that had total control over the means production one with a revolutionary aesthetic um and also a ver and also the creation of a national identity yeah. that was you know that some even see as a um, um, a continuation of the russian national identity yeah
0: except this one was bigger and badder it, yeah, it was, was a bi- soviet identity yeah it was
1: bigger and redder yeah um, exactly
0: <laughs> so like all the things that made the Russian identity, like landowning and also the Orthodox religion, that they were all curtailed for the betterment of the overall Soviet's identity. Exactly.
1: And that the state would be the main <laughs> supreme thing of it. Uh, and through the state, the workers would be liberated. Yeah. And this was further implemented, and this was further um, further supported by... Uh, the Well, that, but also the idea of socialism in one country, in opposition yeah. to Trotsky's Trotsky
0: like, like international socialism. Yeah, exactly.
1: Of, a, of eternal revolution. Um, I mean, you know, after the, uh, the failure, the, the miracle at the vit- Vistula, ger- uh, the, the Soviet Union was kind of limited in where it could go. Yeah.
0: So like they first needed to make themselves stronger. So that's why, because if they weren't a strong country, then it would have been very hard for them to export the Soviet socialist ideology.
1: Exactly. But the idea of na of, a socialism in, in one country, granted, I know there's going to be some Stalinist yelling at me in the comments. I don't give a shit. Um, I don't entirely know about it, but it's basically that the Soviet Union, that socialism should happen in one country and that it should be developed and cultivated in one yeah. country, in which most Trotskyists that I've met and talked to, they say was the main reason why the Soviet Union failed, because it was under the siege, and you can only last under a siege um, for so long, and they weren't able to spread out. I mean, they did
0: try spreading out, but, they like, the, their main competitor was the United States, which was the richest country at the time. Exactly. Still is. USA, motherfucker! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, you can't, you can't slay the USA with, like, the mere snap of two fingers or something.
1: No. No, it wasn't Mongolia. Um, oh, yeah, they also conquered Mongolia during this time period. But we're reaching the end of this episode one. And I want to top it off with something that happened... Um, Something that happened after, uh, you know, a certain Austrian painter got into power. That one that Nikish railed against, you know. Funnily enough, his name was Adolf Hitler. What? 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 No way! What? Well, seems like we're
0: gonna learn a lot about him in the next episode. Well, we're actually going to skip him because he wasn't an asshole. No, I mean, he was a Nazbel, but, but what like, he, didn't he have any effects
1: on the Nazbel? Well, he what he, he will, I and mean, we'll talk about it more, but the funny thing is about Hitler is that he a- actually did, was more, he actually was kind of a synthesis of a lot of Nazbel aspects. He um, made Germany a more autarkic, not autarkic, but, like, you know, um, self-sufficient nation, yeah. as close as autarky you can get while still being capitalist. Um, he... Um, included a lot of like revolutionary uh, language and uh, what's it called Um, aesthetics to it and he also did the thing as to what national bolshevism originally was foreign policy and that he wouldn't form a non-aggression pact with the soviet union and then
0: he would do the funny he would do he would do it would start the bloodiest conflict in human history, yes. Something very uncharacteristic of Europe. <laughs> exactly. Just industrialized nations mastering each other. Never heard of that one before.
1: <laughs> you laugh, right? <laughs> With that, um, the world would be plunged into darkness, violence, barbarism, and, and a new world order exactly a new world order would arise from it one from the ashes, yes. from the ashes like a fiend, from a like a double-headed phoenix yeah that's what we call the u.s now a double-headed phoenix. well i was gonna say that it was one side was was russia it's like there's two wolves inside of you one is the <laughs> Soviet Union. one is one is the warsaw pact and the other is nato <laughs> but i and before we and with that and before i say goodbye we're gonna cut this a little bit i actually wanted to i, I forgot to mention one two colorful characters.
0: Bro, the um, episode is already 55 fucking
1: minutes we're long. Cu- we're, gonna we're gonna cut it, we're gonna cut it, we're gonna cut it. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Um, <laughs> I have something to show you. So, during this time, um, in June of 1929, two, uh, you could say, hamburgers.
0: <laughs> you can't see it, but I'm laughing on the inside. <laughs>
1: two, ha- two hamburgers, um, uh, both of them communists, from Hamburg. Hamburg. Yep. Yeah, no, a very original and funny joke. That's uh, what we're known for? Yes. Um, uh, Laufenberg and Wolfheim began to propagate a national communism in which the restoration of the German fatherland would be achieved by allying with the Soviet Union and then going to war with the Entente. The German proletariat would only have to cooperate with the, with the petty bourgeoisie. I know it's a bit hard with those... Yeah. Uh, with all those, you know, bourgeois motherfuckers, ew, <laughs> and then other communists like Karl Radek and at the time Vladimir Lenin denounced them for their chauvinism as national Bolsheviks. Yeah, that's the, that's the one thing I wanted to add. But thank you so much for tuning in for episode one of a of a ideological obscura. Yeah, thank you all for putting up with us for this one. Yes, um, and we'll see you in episode two. Beide Straßen
0: enden, hört uns am Weg nicht auf.
1: Wohin wir uns auch wenden, die Zeit im Ehrenlauf. das Herz verbrannt, im Schmerz verbrannt, so ziehen wir verloren. Land, Vielleicht er von uns keiner mehr zurück ins Heimatland. Wir sind verloren. Wir sind verloren.